0: Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, General Metcalf and the staff, for inviting me to... It, this is a rare opportunity for anybody to speak at the premier military aviation museum in the world. So <laughs> I consider it a real honor and a privilege, and it's, it's uh, fun to be here. Um, I want to find out a little bit about you. (laughs) So, uh, I mean this is a very uh, distinguished group, a special kind of a group, people interested in aviation space. So I'd like to know a little more about uh, you to help me uh, uh, bias perhaps how I spend the time with you. Uh, Let's start by giving me a, a wave or even stand up if you want if you've spent a career in aviation, any kind, give me give, give me a wave. <laughs> That's a lot of people. Uh, how many in military uh, aviation? How many have have had combat time in military aviation? Any four sixty ninth Fighter fighter squadron F one uh, hundred five thud people? uh, uh people wild oh wild weasels okay great thirty fourth and okay um, now w- would the staff uh, please uh, wave your hand here of the museum and or just or just stand up uh, i I just want to congratulate you for what you've done uh, I've been communicating with general Metcalf on and off. Uh, back to 2000. So I know what's happened here in the last uh, 10 years or so under your leadership and with the staff that you have. This is impressive. This is an impressive facility. Uh, We are all proud of of what you've done here. America is proud of what you have here. So um, thank you very much, staff. And now... Now let me ask this, how many here believe that the United States is to blame for all the problems in the world? Show me a hand. <laughs> I don't, well, I just wanted to see if you were listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, this This is kind of a menu um, I've spent 30 years as a professor after retiring from the Air Force in 1975. So um, I, I like menus rather than agendas. Menus, you kind of pick and choose. Uh, some of my picking and choosing will be depending upon your interests. Um, but I I want to start out with, with giving you some of my guidelines that I have formed for presentations myself and uh, The title, of course, is the 2007 meaning of the Vietnam War. Um, This is something I've been thinking about uh, for the last 40 years, actually, and talking some about it uh, since I was there. But on the other hand, I thought when I was putting this together that the most significant thing happening today is terrorism. So I thought we, I just needed to bring my views of, of terrorism and the war on terrorism into it. Uh, so I'll do that. Uh, now, the, uh, the Rolling Thunder and F-105D is kind of the focus because that's, that's my background. So I'll, I'll give you a little overview of Rolling Thunder Uh, some of the good, some of the bad on it, Um, and the 100 missions over North Vietnam, which was a unique policy by the United States Air Force. United States Air Force was the only service in Vietnam, and I think maybe since, who came out right from the beginning and said, okay, nobody will go back for a second involuntary tour in combat, until everybody with the pair of wings has gone once. And uh, that was a very unique policy. It had really significant implications for managing the Air Force. And I got into some of that after I was over in Karat. We can talk about it if you want. Um, now, this is your business here, history's impact on the future. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that because, because you're really involved in that and the funny thing about the vietnam war is it never goes away remember how significant that issue was in the presidential election for 2004. it may be an issue again next year in the election for 2008. Um, now uh, when i retired from the air force I stayed uh, linked with the Aerospace Technology Working Group, and uh, which turns out has been one of the leading space uh, forums in, uh, in the United States and the world. And so, so what happened after uh, President Bush made his announcement in January 2004 that we were going to go back to the moon and to the Mars? First First statement by a president since President Kennedy said we're going to the moon. Well, what happened was we were having a meeting in Long Beach, every six months this group gets together. And uh, I said, gee, you know, there's a new emphasis on space. Shouldn't we write a book? And they said, great idea, you do it. <laughs> so that's that's the book that uh, Jeff uh, mentioned that we spent, 41 of us spent uh, 18 months doing. So I wanna talk a little bit about that because I don't wanna talk only about the past. I wanna bring, I really wanna try and link up kind of a past to the present, to the future with this presentation. But I wanna get into your views and questions, and I'm gonna try and split the time almost evenly. We have a little over an hour, I guess. so maybe, maybe I'll spend uh, 30 minutes myself, but then I wanna open it up to your questions and comments. So, so be thinking about a question you think I should answer for the whole group as I'm going through it, and we're gonna get into your comments later. Just briefly now, presentation guidelines. I gave up lecturing about 1980s. I retired in 1975 and, and went into uh, university work in business and uh, management and a degree program at USC called Systems Management that we took to 70 locations uh, around, literally around the world, Europe, Asia, and throughout the United States. But one thing I learned very soon <laughs> about being a professor is you better, be, you better be brief. I gave up lecturing completely uh, very shortly after there for a number of reasons. One of them is we were always, or I was always having students preparing for some kind of a decision. I'm convinced that if you cannot brief a decision maker about your recommendations for the decision in 15 minutes, you're going to lose the decision maker. Now we're not we're not making a decision tonight. We're, this I, I'd like to think of this more as a um, kind of an ideas workshop than a decision. However, there's some other things that I I hope come out of it. There's there's some other interesting things about this. One is is retention. University student retention studies have shown that if you don't write if you don't write down what the professor is saying. Uh, Two hours after you've left, 50% of of what happened will be gone, mentally will be gone. And 24 hours later, you probably remember two or three ideas if you don't record them. So that's a a universal retention thing. So that's another reason I'd like to be brief. And and if I get carried away, just raise your hand and say, hey, stop and let's talk about something. The other interesting thing is what's happened culturally. When we watch the media now, <laughs> if you don't get a decision on the news in, what, 10 seconds or 15 seconds, what, you get a little nervous. You know, why, why haven't we gotten to the point? This is a, a fascinating phenomena that's happened because of our technology and because of the media. We really don't know the, uh, the real impacts of what this means, but we, we're getting a very short attention time uh, span. Anyway, those um, now uh, rele- this is the second guideline. You always want to be relevant to your audience. That's why one reason I asked who you are <laughs> because I wanted to I, I, I don't think you'd be here on a cold and wet uh, rainy night in Dayton if, if you didn't have some interest in the subject uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that there's some relevance here. Uh, Involve the audience, that's why I want to spend time with uh, your interests and your questions and some future networking, which we're going to talk about. The last one is to create a product. Now Dan Oliver is up there creating a DVD, which will be one product that comes out of this. There may be some utility for it. because historically, uh, I had four or five Footlocker's full of material that I had saved as I was the ops officer and the commander for the 469th. We were the first squadron to deploy PCS from the United States to fly over North Vietnam. We left McConnell Air Force Base 15 November 1965. But I had just come from a master's degree And so Bob Chastain was in the squadron. There were 18 of us that went over, and Bob and I decided, and this was all classified. A lot of you remember, Vietnam operations were classified until April 1966. We couldn't even tell our families where we were going. Everybody pretty well figured it out. But in November '65, it was classified. So, um, Bob Chastain and I said, okay, we better start documenting things because we want to write a book. Well, <laughs> 40 years later, Jeff DeFord, uh, last month we have a reunion here. Uh, I have the privilege of meeting Jeff and Doug Langtree, his colleague, who, who are, have been very influential in building the C Gallery, which is which is marvelous. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. But anyway... Uh, I finally found the right place to uh, give some of this material to. Um, the Sea Gallery is in process. It's, it's and what's interesting, to, what was interesting to me, and why I picked this subject, and and the people here agreed to it, was that Rolling Thunder and the 100 missions are going to be a special focus in it. For some of you, you may you may want to. Uh, Interact with me in the future, which i'm whoop, which I'm happy to do okay um, let's uh, let's start with the end. <laughs> uh, I, I want to just give you my personal beliefs about the Vietnam War, the meaning of it now, and my my own personal beliefs about. Uh, the war on terrorism. And and just, I'm going to have a slide on each one and then we'll go back and kind of uh, build back up to it again. Fascinating thing about Vietnam history still is we lost the war in Vietnam. Well, We didn't lose the war militarily in Vietnam. You know, in January of 1973, uh, Kissinger um, came to an agreement where our prisoners would return, which they did the next month, and we would withdraw our military forces. So it wasn't until two years later that um, South Vietnam was taken over by the North. So we didn't lose the war militarily. As a matter of fact, history now shows that there was not really any major military battle which was lost. But this is what I believe, and which um, I'm, I'm trying to influence uh, history writing to look at this more seriously. The, uh, I believe the domino theory was right, and a lot of other people do too. Um, Some of you may remember, Indonesia was getting very heavily communist-influenced. In 1966, they threw the communists out because the United States was involved in Vietnam. Singapore, of course, never went communist. Uh, A lot of other Asian countries that were under the gun and under the goal of communism to be exploited did not happen. And I'm convinced it's because we were for 11 years fighting communism in Vietnam. And I, I also believe, having uh, <laughs> having spent some time in East Europe and spending almost all of my career in the Cold War, that what was happening was that the, in Communism was decaying internally while we were in Vietnam and while we were conducting the Cold War. And by our actions, the collapse of the Berlin Wall happened sooner and the Cold War was won. Okay. <laughs> I told you I was just going to show a slide that comes back to it, so I'll try I'll try not to get too deeply into these. This is the one that is uh, seriously impacting us today. This did not start with 9-11. It started about 1,200 years ago. And uh, some of you have done the historical work uh, with Islam actually... Uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages, um, Islam and the fundamentalist expansionist view uh, almost took over the world. Uh, they almost did it uh, uh, two or three hundred years after that. So the goal has been there throughout history. What we're seeing now is the current uh, operation of the fundamentalist Islam goal of taking over the world, and my, my personal view is that if that happens, uh, the progress of civilization is going to be reversed, Western civilization as we know it. Um, I went back to reading Arnold Toynbee in 1949. He wrote his work on civilizations. Civilizations. He has a fascinating chapter in that book uh, describing the, the history of this struggle between Western, the progress of uh, Western nations and Western civilization and the fundamentalist Islam. And, and he did an interesting job of comparing the fundamentalist Islam with, with the Islam that was trying to be more like the West. They didn't, he didn't use the name jihadist, but that's what we're using now. Okay, let's, let me talk a little bit about, about rolling thunder. Best way to start is with Ollie North. So, uh, Dan, let's run Oliver North.
1: plane called it the thud or the lead sled the u.s air force called it the f-105 thunder chief and during the vietnam war it was a workhorse i'm oliver north welcome to war stories coming to you tonight from the national museum of the u.s air force at wright patterson air force base in dayton ohio between 1961 and 73 over 3,000 aircraft like this one were shot down or destroyed in southeast asia 1968, the last year of Rolling Thunder, and 652 men piloting these planes lost their lives. From March of 65 to October of 68, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Airmen logged roughly a million sorties over North Vietnam, dropping a half million tons of bombs. Impressive that Rolling Thunder was far from a triumph. As you'll see and hear in this Four Stories episode, orders straight from the White House forced the men flying these missions to fight with one hand tied behind their backs. And those restrictions inevitably cost American lives. Join us tonight as we pay tribute to the heroes of Operation Rolling Thunder.
0: That was uh, October of 2005, and of course, obviously, he started it uh, right here. Uh, That was his war stories on Sunday night. Um, Let me run a couple of minutes now of a Discovery Channel... Um, coverage of the F-105 Dan if you'd run the discovery one.
1: The right time. Up to that time, there had been continued problems with reliability, and as recently as 1962, they had all been grounded. Though the problems had been ironed out, the plague of minor defects and accidents had continued almost up to their first Vietnamese missions. But the thuds in Vietnam were to earn a completely different reputation as a reliable and durable airplane. They also earned a fearsome reputation as weapons. The importance of the Thunder Chief in Vietnam was clear. During the first five years of their involvement there, they flew an amazing 75% of all Air Force attack missions. If the skies of Vietnam were full of bombs, it was because the thuds...
0: Okay. Uh, I hadn't actually realized uh, that 75% of the missions over the North in that 65 to 68 period... Uh, were the F-105 until I re-ran that one over. What I want to do is give you now through some slides kind of a an overview of the 469th and the pilots at uh, flying the F-105 there and then roll into uh, the 100 mission. The 100 mission tour is what completely occupied the time and attention of every pilot that was there. I mean, they, you had very little time to do anything else but to um, be up briefing at three o'clock in the morning. We we were fairly short, and this, we remember, we were early on in the uh, war, 65 to 66. So the, uh, we went over with 18, pilots in the squadron. There were a few that had been flying TDY out of Okinawa and all. Uh, we lost about half of them. It was it was a tough uh, environment. The statistics ended up being um, you had a 35% chance of being shot down <coughs> in, in that 65 to 68 period. But the 100 mission <laughs> was... Uh, there's not much joy about going to war. A lot of you have done it. Uh, I mean, pure joy of being there. There's a lot of satisfaction in flying a, a good mission, in uh, hitting the target, and in, in doing good work for your your colleagues and saving uh, your friends on the ground. Those are all very satisfying things about it. But there's not much joy in uh, flying a war. But, What I want to show you is the joy of some 105 pilots who achieved the uh, 100 mission. Um, Here's some stuff quickly on the performances of the 105. Here's armaments, different shots of them. The 105 was designed as a nuclear bomber. And... uh, First, the first fighter airplane that had a bomb bay, and the bomb bay was designed to carry a nuclear weapon. Of course, that never that never happened with the Thud, so it was modified to carry all its stuff. You just saw. We being the first squadron over. And <coughs> um, Major Barnett was the ops of the 421st squadron. I was the ops of the 469th. This was. Uh, coming up at the end of December of 65, and we could see that we each had in those two squadrons two people that were that were going to come up to the 100 very soon. And so we said, hey, why don't, why don't we uh, figure this out? So they all four, the first F-100 mission over North Vietnam, we have all four flying. So we did that. Bruce Holmes, Will May, Dick Ely, and Bill Ramage. They... <laughs> For, I guess, 35 years, uh, we all believed these were the first ones to get 100 missions. Well, an interesting thing about history, once you start publishing things like that, is that uh, um, somebody else said, hey, wait, I had 100 missions. I was over at Lee and I had it uh, earlier than that. So it turns out now there are three or four pilots that uh, were before this particular flight. This is a shot I made of the briefing for that mission, where the four of them got this is uh, this is Fred De here, the Flying Dutchman. Uh, he was he was standing in for the briefing to be a spear, and he didn't go on that one. But those are the the other four. Here they are afterwards, celebrating to some extent. Now I'm just going to run through a few shots here. Tom Gibbs, we. When we deployed with this first squadron, we were all high-time uh, fighter pilots. I think we, we averaged three, 400 hours in the 105, and uh, everybody had about 1,500 to 2,000 hours. That was the first group that went over in November. Well, very shortly, because the missions were going fast, people were coming up to the end, the, the lieutenants started coming in feeding behind us from Nellis. Tom Gibbs was one, ended up on the, uh, the Air Force Space and Digest. <laughs> you, can see, you can see, this is, some of the few pictures, I took, All by the way, we had no uh, film coverage at Crop. There, there was no Air Force photographers on the ground, no media there <laughs> covering. Uh, so I had uh, an undergraduate degree in cinematography, I took my camera over, so I started snapping pictures. I hope somebody in this room knows of Dr. Marshall J. Dyke. I call him the perfect fighter squadron flight surgeon. Uh Doc Dyke looks like a fighter pilot, acted like a fighter pilot, but he was our flight surgeon <laughs> when we were over there. <laughs> he he flew every time he could get in an airplane, he would go. And he, you know, he was at the bar with us. He uh, when we lost people, he was the guy was just amazing. I, I've lost track of uh, Doc Dyke. I would love to um, make contact with him again. Was he a pilot? No, no, he, no, he just <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> Tony Gangle is interesting. And uh, Tony Gangle, you know, fighter pilots are pretty optimistic, <laughs> basically. Maybe you, maybe you have to be optimistic to be a fighter pilot. Uh, but Tony Gangle, uh, uh, the first few missions, he'd come back from North Vietnam, and he'd he'd come in and he'd shake his head and says, "There ain't no way, ain't no way to get a hundred missions over North Vietnam." Well, that ain't no way uh, term spread between uh, around Karat and Talkley, and uh, there ain't no way was kind of a saying that was going on. Well, I had. Worked with the Air Force's Lookout Mountain Lab in uh, in Los Angeles because I, I had a degree in cinematography. Some of my professors had come from there, and I had I had done a film uh, working with them. So I wrote Colonel Gallerani, who was head of the Lookout Lab, and I said, uh, "This was in January of 1966." I said, "Hey, we're fighting a war over here. Nobody's covering this," <laughs> and uh, so he he wrote right back and said we're working on it uh, we'll we'll have a, a fighter we'll have a a screenwriter director photographer team over there well they showed up uh, in 67 across and most of you, how many of you have seen there is a way the film there is a way well it's it's a terrifically well done film about the f105s uh flying over the north and that's Tony Gangle is, and that's why they picked the (laughs) name. Because, well, there is a way, there are people doing it. Ralph Beardsley ends up uh, that film getting the 100th mission. Here's Bob Chastain. Uh, You know, one of the the things that bothers me about our history, and, and you people here are doing it better than anywhere else in the world, But everybody who's involved has a story. And uh, I I wish we had captured uh, all the stories from all of these people. This is Kurt Chastain, who's the father of Bob Chastain, that we saw here. He's slogging his 100th mission on the 24th of April. Kurt, this was last month when we had the reunion here. And Kurt, he's an airline pilot, and... uh, He's been very involved in documenting what his dad did, and so he was here. And this, of course, you recognize the the thud that's in your gallery. Bob Chastain, unfortunately, well, he, he finished his 100th mission on the 24th of April, which, ironically, he flew in the morning. I went out and greeted him when he came in. That afternoon we lost both Bill Cooper, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Cooper, who was the commander, and Jerry Driscoll, both of them on the 24th of April. Bill Cooper was eventually uh, KIA, and Jerry Driscoll spent six years in Hanoi. Uh, He he came back. He's now got 10,000 flying hours. He's with executive jets, and uh, he's, he's doing great. This was the original group, uh, about half of which didn't make it one way or the other. Um, Just a few quick ones here. This is Ken Thomas. Uh, He was shot down and rescued. This is Colonel Saber Sams greeting him with with a bottle of uh, champagne here. Uh, Three weeks later, we lost Ken completely and um, never came back the Flying Dutchman. Uh, because we were the first squadron over there, we were also involved in doing some of the initial um, analysis. And Fred de Jong, uh, did the analysis of photo chase with the F-105. So he's up here, he's, he's hugging a camera, uh, and he actually wrote the uh, t- tactical doctrine for it. That was a big hole that uh, Bill Cooper got on the 10th of April, two weeks later, he was hit with a, a surface-to-air missile, and that was that was the date that uh, I became the commander. It took a long time. Bill was listed as missing for a very long time. Dick Hackford. Um, okay, I'd like to give you just a feel now with the video. That, By the way, this is the first time this uh, video has been shown uh, anywhere. For some interesting reasons, we can go into it if you want. Uh, but go ahead and roll it, Dan. When they realized that I was going to be the first one to get 100, first commander to get 100 missions, the uh, Saigon sent a uh, film crew over. I'd forgotten about it for years and years and years. This is uh Nick Poole. This is me. This is Doc Dyke. Doc Dyke went in the backseat of an F4 chase plane on this on this mission. And so the the film crew came over and, and covered me getting out of bed in the morning and, and all the way through to being at the bar at the at the end of the mission. And, uh, but, but this this will give you just a feel for the environment that we're in, uh, the gear the airplanes, and particularly the reception for the 100 mission, which uh, which you'll see here, and which this squadron, we created. The 100 mission reception, which uh, I think three or four of our pilots put together, was used for the entire Vietnam War, anybody who got 100 missions. We had a policy in the squadron that if you got to 97 missions, we'd make every attempt to put you on a milk run for your last three. Of course, the 1C tour policy was based on, the whole concept was risk. <clears throat> the Air Force decided that equalizing risk among rated people was more important than keeping pilots going and uh, perhaps, the interesting trade-off. There's been a lot of analysis about uh, that policy Because uh, people like Herman Kahn said, uh, well, the trouble with Vietnam was that the learning curve would go this way and then back up again because uh, uh, everybody would leave and you'd get new people in. After this 100th mission, I thought, wow, I was waiting for my orders. And I thought, boy, I'm going to get a great command job. Um, The orders came in and says, you're going to be a personnel weenie at Randolph, the personnel (laughs) center. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. I started contacting all my, <clears throat> my colonel and general friends and saying, they can't do this to me, can they? And they said, don't worry, Bob, we'll get you out of it. Well, they all came back and said, Bob, you're going to Randall. They're gonna be a personnel wing. <clears throat> the reason was that the Air Force had nobody to manage the 1C tour to policy. So they picked, uh, me as a fighter, they picked a recce, pilot, a logistics pilot, and a SAC pilot. And the four of us went to Randolph in uh, summer of 1966, and we formed a unit which began to figure out how the Air Force can do this, because there was a tremendous difference between uh, rated resources within the Air Force and rated requirements in Southeast Asia, and in order to do the one c tour there's there's doc dyke and the f four taking off uh, somehow or other the film that they took airborne uh, never recovered. but here we are coming landing, and you're going to see the hundred mission reception almost every pilot and i'm going to i'm going to show you some pilots last month of these people here it is uh, well there was a real morale problem. There was a morale problem to a certain degree with the pilots because the loss rates were high. But there was also a, a morale problem with, with crew chiefs. I mean, the maintenance was... Fa- I flew 125 missions in Southeast Asia without an abort. 125 without an abort in the F-105. Now, that, that's pretty spectacular, but it was because the maintenance was so effective and they just worked 24 hours a day. By the way, this is uh, one of the very few times that we ever taxied in formation coming back in. So the four of us ended up at Randolph and began to uh, document the number of rated uh, people we had. This, this is uh, Hopkins who took over for me. In, this was the 3rd of June, 1966. What it, what it meant, of course, was we had to do a huge training within the Air Force. We had to take pilots out of logistics, out of one airplane that wasn't in sea, train them like the F-105. Nellis was the place where the F-105 pilots were trained. And <clears throat> send them to Southeast Asia. Well, General LeMay was head of the Strategic Air Command. and uh... He didn't want anybody to go, uh, his pilots to go to, uh, to Southeast Asia. It was it was before the SAC uh, bombers went. Uh, <laughs> I I took a briefing that we prepared to the chief of staff of the Air Force, in which we showed the problem of of resources in the different commands, what you needed in Southeast Asia, and uh, whoop. Let's see. I think yeah, well that's okay. It's running. I think this is Jeff. This may be Jeff uh, DuFord talking about history, which. I'm going to run you some 2007 views of the Vietnam War from pilots who were there at the time and who are now uh, uh, back here in a reunion. Tell us, uh, while our aging 469ers, what can we do now to to help you continue with this? You know what
2: you can do is the thing is that museums do many things, and the most evident thing that museums do is exhibit. That's what everybody sees. There's a a mission that every museum has that's even more important than exhibiting, and that's preservation. And so, what 469ers can do is artifacts and archived material. Artifacts would include flood gear, helmets, boots, gloves, memorabilia, uh, things that we don't even know what to ask for because we weren't there. They could be good luck charms, they could be, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a bowl, maybe somebody had a had a carved bowl or something, or things that we didn't even know what to ask for. Um, archive material would include documents, photographs, slides, negatives. Um, you know, the, you know. One, I think one of one of the many good ways to to understand what a museum needs, and especially a museum like ours, is if you were to ask yourself, what sort of stuff among the stuff that I have would someone 500 years from now want to look at to understand my life during this time?
0: I thought that was a really interesting statement that I'd really never heard anybody say before. Uh, <clears throat> but that's exactly what's happening here. And I think it's it's that kind of uh, philosophy and approach to, to history that uh, is encouraging a lot of us now in our, our old age to, uh, to help you build the sea gallery. Well, what, one of those things is that uh, when, I, uh, when I got my 100 missions, the squadron uh, created a, a special trophy, and this is it, and it's now... Uh, Donna, Lana McKinney has it uh, just last week. I've been carrying that thing around for, for 40 years. Okay, what happened was we had a reunion um, last month here at the Bob Hope with the 469th. And I took my uh, video camera and asked uh, some of the people, or I, as many as I could, hey, make a short statement about your feeling now, about the 100 missions, about the Vietnam War, uh, and so I wanna run uh, run a few of those because I think they're they're instruct- instructive. Oh yeah, go ahead. Um Yeah wish my hundred
1: missions on the second of june nineteen sixty seven. The most exciting plan I've ever done in my life. And uh look back on it and
0: wish I could do it over again. Well Roy Dickey, you're one of America's heroes. It's a pleasure to be with you. Roy Dickey, Commander. The
1: 469. Is Harry
0: Sure here tonight?
1: In September of 1967, it was my second hundred missions. I had flown previously a hundred missions in Korea and f the And Believe me, the hundred missions in Vietnam in mean, that theater were
0: a lot more interesting and a lot more exciting. Thank you, sir. Commander, of the 469. Uh, Hi,
3: my name is Matt Dillon. I was fortunate enough to fly the F-105 in combat for a number number of years. I started in March of 1967 with Rolling Thunder. I finished up in January 1968 uh, with a little over 100 missions. My thoughts now are that looking back, I think we did what we thought was best at the time
2: based on the guidance we were given. I, I'm happy to see the conversion of the public to be appreciative of the military, which didn't happen when we were there.
0: Thank you, Matt. You're one of America's heroes.
2: A pleasure to be with huge you. Huge
0: difference. Huge difference between the approach to the military now than after Vietnam. Pe- people <laughs> didn't even <laughs> <or> the, Robbie <laughs> Robertson. I'm, I'm Robbie Robertson
3: mission in January of 1968 and uh, I thought that every one of those hundred missions was doing something worthwhile and I still do and I just hope that the thing we're in right now that we don't lose our national resolve
0: Thank you Robbie You're one of our American heroes It's a real pleasure to be with you
3: I did my message on December 21st and got on Christmas Day 1966 the flying to fly 100 missions and the thing I did in the Air Force I'm the most proud of uh, you think it's going to go away but I speak annually uh, 10 or 12 times on this subject and I talk a lot about it. we knew when, he, when we landed we, would do our, we were alive when we landed read that six airplanes were shot down, they didn't know. And I talk
0: about that also. That's it. Well, that's right, Ed. We're, we're the lucky ones. Uh, we the the real heroes are the ones who didn't come back. That's
3: right. And when we landed, we knew we were okay. They didn't.
0: Ed Kohlmeier. Do you want to stop it there for a minute, Dan? Uh, <clears throat> that, that comment about the real heroes being the ones who didn't come back, uh, I've been spending some time in, in your park. And this, this is, your memorabilia park is, is the best one in the world. And that idea comes across very strongly in every one of the monuments that's there for, for all the different kinds of military flying. And when you back off philosophically and think about it, uh, if the United States had not developed their military aviation forces as well as it did, we probably would have lost World War II. We could very well have lost the Cold War. Although the, the combination of uh, military aviation and nuclear weapons, I think, are the, are the critical factors for uh, the Cold War. A lot of other variables, but they were they were critical about it. And it, we, we don't often think about this, but what would we be doing <laughs> if we had lost World War II? What would we be doing now if we had lost the Cold War? And it was that kind of thinking that uh, led me to wanting to include um, the thought here about uh, what if we lose the war on terror in many ways it would be as devastating as losing World War II or the Cold War um, go ahead Dan with the we got a couple of more and then we're going to transition into two of the prisoner wars are the last two. This is Ed Colmeyer John McMahon should be coming up.
3: And uh, my 100th mission on on April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1967.
2: It was an interesting time. And I think as I look around these guys, how fortunate I was to make it through my 100. When I talked to some of these fellas that came through and spent that time up north, I thank God that I wasn't one of those. I'm not sure I could have stood up the way they did.
3: It's been a great experience. It's been a great life. And I really be, enjoyed being here with these
0: guys. Well, it's a pleasure to share the experience with you, John, you're an American hero.
3: My name is Sam Martin, and I flew out on the 469th to uh early 67. I left in I uh, got my 100 missions in uh, August 67. I really felt uh, honored to be with that group, the f- finest group of fighting men I've ever met in my life. Some of the thoughts I've had since then is that, uh, that I live with like a lot of uh, soldiers that were up there. Because the fact that we weren't allowed to win that war. rules of engagement at that point in time kept us from winning that it. war. Uh, it's something that I'll think about the rest of my life. We could have ended that war very, very quickly. Uh, had we been allowed to, uh, hit the major targets that we should have had uh, early on in the war. And it shows what politics will do in uh, any type of conflict. Uh, we should be listening to the military tires and people over there. But uh, at this reunion, uh, we had a lot of, uh, a lot of memories, a lot of wonderful people that are here that we think about constantly. Uh,
0: Sam Martin, you're one of our American heroes. that's a point that uh, we could get into uh, in your Q&A if you want but uh, it's the feeling of the the pilots uh, about the way the war was managed tactically it was a very important subject and uh, uh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe I'll break off here. because I, uh, I don't believe in military retired people or people who have important positions in the government uh, retiring and suddenly writing books or going to the media uh, describing uh, how terrible things were. But when McNamara came out with his 1995 book, and said uh, it was all a mistake. I <laughs> I couldn't let that one go, and I, so I wrote a I, a little article that ended up in the University and uh, Los Angeles Times on the on the two big mistakes of McNamara. But when we were there, uh, and we were a vivid uh, example of it, uh, McNamara and Johnson met Tuesdays at lunches. They Picked out the JCS targets in, in six pack. Uh, every Tuesday they would pick it. Now, <laughs> when we were there, they not only picked the targets out, they said, okay, you'll go flights of four, uh, 12,000 feet every four minutes from, you know, into Hanoi. Well, we were losing, uh, every mission we were losing pilots. Finally, Sabre Sams, our wing commander, <coughs> Uh, uh, and he never made general because of this, <laughs> but he he called Saigon one day and he says, "I'm coming down there tomorrow. We're not flying. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to talk about this." So he did, and the uh, eventually the uh, the uh, Washington and uh, Johnson and McNamara and. The Pentagon uh, turned over more and more of the tactics to the people who were flying the airplanes in Vietnam, um, but not still not completely. And Sam Martin's point there, of course, um, was felt by a, a lot of people. It's a it's a very interesting, controversial subject that will never go away. Uh, okay, I want to uh, show just a couple of uh, POWs now: Sweet Larson and uh, Tom Norris. Let's run those, Dan. Yeah, number eight, there. Sam Markman.
3: Well, my name is Sweet Larson. I uh, flew the 105 at 469 in front. had a great tour up until my 95th mission, and I uh, went back to help a pal of mine and I uh, ran into a Sam. Uh, Right away, and spent the next six years in the hill. Uh, since that time, uh, I haven't too many regrets over it. I enjoyed my tour in the Air Force. Uh, I live in San Antonio and uh, started playing civilian in uh, 1970, 1974 uh, and had a ball down there. For life now in, uh, Air Force Village once, San Antonio.
0: Yeah. Larson, you're one of our American heroes it's a real pleasure to be with you go to swede larson 's website i mean it 's a fantastic story it uh, he was going almost Mach one when he had to bail out in the <coughs> Yeah, go ahead and run Tom Norris.
2: Yeah, my name's Tom Norris, and I'm a fighter pilot. You know, I've been wanting to fly airplanes ever since I was five years old. And finally ended up in the F-105. I really wasn't sure I wanted to fly it at first because the darn thing was blow up in the middle of the air. But by the time I got to it, they'd made a correction and fixed it up, so it worked real well. Finest airplane I've ever flown uh i took a lot of hits flying it in vietnam during the strike missions and uh the darn thing held up well you know but one day it just took one hit too many and it just couldn't quite make it so uh, i got shot down and spent a lot of time in the prisoner war in north vietnam but i've never lost my desire to fly not since five years old up until today and after i got out of the air force after 80s uh after uh, 26 years. I went, to, I went. back to flying for Branham, TWA, and finally United Parcel Service. And I retired again for United Parcel Service. Uh, whatever's in your blood to fly, whatever's in your blood to be a fighter pilot, that's an attitude. That's about all I can say. It's an attitude, and the attitude never goes away. If an airplane flies over, I always look up, and it always bothers me that other people don't. Have a good
0: day. Tom Norris, you're one of America's real heroes. It's great to be
2: with you. Thanks,
0: Thanks, Rick. Okay. Sweet Larson and Tom Norris. Uh, The next one, Dan, you can be uh, finding it. I'd like to run uh, Leo Thorsness. It's just Thorsness, I think, for 49 seconds. But um, Tom Norris... um, Thanks, Rick. Hold off a minute on uh, on Thorson's. Um, we had a reunion at uh, San Antonio in 2000. As a matter of fact, it was that reunion that uh, created the 469th uh, website because we were planning it, and uh, Thanks, I, I was working with uh, uh, the other commanders setting that thing up, and I said, you know, I, I was just at... Uh, at the museum, and there's, you know, there's one thud there, but there's, this was 2,000 now, <laughs> you know, but there's not much else about Southeast Asia, and uh, I said, why don't we create a website? And they said, great idea. Why don't, why don't uh, you talk to uh, General Metcalf about it? And uh, I thought, well, I'll, okay. I'll, so I, I emailed General Metcalf, and. Uh, had no idea what the response would be, but the response was unbelievable. <laughs> he not only liked the idea, he assigned Captain Pat Champ, who was a website uh, technician, and said, do it. And this was three weeks before we were having our reunion. I, I thought, you know, the most we'll do when we get to San Antonio is I can stand up and say, we're going to have a website, you know. <laughs> what happened was Pat Champ, Put together and it was online the night uh, of our banquet for the 2000 reunion and Pat went on to produce over a hundred pages on it and and you can find it now and it's it's uh, thanks very much for all of you doing that it's a it's a beautiful addition to uh, the Southeast Asia uh, yeah run run Thorsenus one
2: will be the situation but for those POWs, I know as time
1: drags on, it has to be harder. This harder was How do you keep after to the Gulf to War in or Seattle. Or go home one day? Well, if times are real tough. You live maybe a day at a
0: time or an hour at a time, sometimes a minute at a time. And uh, people are optimistic. And the fighter pilots, the aviators, are a pretty confident group. They're not arrogant. But uh, you just live uh, for, that, for that moment. And... Uh,
1: knowing
0: that, uh, and it's especially good now, they know the people are behind them. Uh, they, they know their families are praying with them and for them, so they have some extra support. Okay, Leo Thorsness, uh, Medal of Honor. Uh, he uh, was released in February 1973 with the other 590 uh, prisoners of war, but he was, he was so ill, they had... Uh, They'd broken uh, both of his legs, and he he told me... Leo and I lived across the street from each other for four years, flying 84s and 100s at Turner in uh, 54 to 58. And he told me, you know, Bob, he said, the first three years were torture. The last three and a half were boring. Uh, <clears throat> because, you know, the wives were very effective in finally getting the issue to be uh, publicized about the treatment of the POWs, and it actually... It actually made a difference. Uh, It also helped to have Ho Chi Minh die in that uh, time period. Uh, But Leo, uh, he had to be downloaded in Hawaii on the way back because he was was so ill. And he called President Nixon (coughs) and said, they left me here. (laughs) They left me here. They left me here in Hawaii. Of course, he was in the hospital, and they were trying to help him. Nixon sent over a C 141 just for Leo, brought him back, and he was awarded. He wasn't awarded the Medal of Honor for being a prisoner of war. He, if you go out here in the Medal of Honor monument, you'll see his date is April 1967 because Leo was the commander of the Wild Weasels, and he did a brilliant job of, of the strategy for Wild Weasels. The, probably the most dangerous uh, flying job ever. And uh, <laughs> he was so effective in it that it was it was that performance that he was given the Medal of Honor for. I think being a POW for six and a half years uh, uh, probably helped too. Um, okay. There's uh, Rolling Thunder, 100 Missions, um, some of the views on the Vietnam War. Let me... Let me just say a couple of things in in kind of summary about history and a little bit about space, and then I want to get to your questions. I think this is a point that I made before. Um, History interprets the past influences, present policy, and impacts for the future. This is one of the really enjoyable uh, experiences I've had interacting (coughs) with, with Jeff and with doug langtree and and Lona and the staff here, um, because of the understanding of of how history evolves over time, and how different interpretations of it change as time goes on, um, and the lessons that we learn from certain events and wars, and how those lessons even change, the Gulf War. was was such a great example of what happened in Vietnam with incrementally running it out for 11 years. The Gulf War landed, uh, Terry, what was it? Uh, (laughs) Or a matter of days. Um, One of the problems we have is fully understanding the next war by trying to interpret it from the last war. One one of the the comments of people in the Pentagon at the time of the Vietnam War and, and, and afterwards in doing the analysis was, we never had a relevant image of the opponent. In other words, we never formulated in Washington a think tank of North Vietnamese people from the culture and, and, and ran issues into them and say, well, what would you do about this? Um, I, I think we're, I, I'm not sure we're doing, I think we are doing it now with, with terror, doing it better, but we never did it in uh, Vietnam. Okay, uh, this is just a review of of my beliefs, um, remember, and you remember this one. <laughs> uh, Secretary of State Rice. I don't know if you heard her being interviewed once, where she worked uh, back for on the Reagan staff, and she said, "You know, when he came out, I guess just talking to the staff that that way." Uh, before he made a public announcement about it, he says, you know, it kind of shocked everybody. (laughs) I mean, how can you be that simple? This is complicated. (laughs) Uh, But that's what he said. We win, they lose, and that's what happened. I think we need that one again now. There he is at the wall. Um, Now, the interesting thing about Vietnam and... Tom Norris is the re- Tom Norris went back on a visit with thirteen POWs in 1998, and at the, the 2000 reunion, Sue and I were sitting with him and and his wife uh, uh, Nancy, and and he was telling us about the trip. I never wanted to go back to Vietnam, but he changed my mind, so we went back in 2002 to uh, Vietnam, and and I'm glad we did. It was really interesting. Uh, that. President Clinton opening up the relations to Vietnam uh, really made a tremendous difference. We, we had a young Vietnamese guy that was with us for three or four days. And obviously, he was he was government assigned, but he, he was a young man, and uh, um, he said, "You know, I got up at three o'clock in the morning when President Clinton got here, so I could see him driving down the street." Well, uh, some of us thought. We're not so sure about that, but but here's Tom Tom Norris uh, wrote a report which is hasn't been published uh, about his trip in 1998, and and this is an interesting statement. Um, back in 2000 again, I remember a, an email I sent to General Metcalf that that uh, said we really need to do a better job of identifying the positive things. That happened from the Vietnam War, for one reason to to help change history, but for another because because we need to find out what's happening. Well, here's Tom Norris, who spent uh, five and a half years as a POW, going back and seeing, coming to this conclusion. I'll tell you our conclusion. Uh, that, <laughs> that's Sue. We, have, we went back to Hanoi and spent several days. I really wanted to go back to see the Hanoi Hilton because so many of my friends and colleagues had spent so much time there. And we saw the Hanoi Hilton. And I'll tell you, it was... Um, how many have read Return with Honor? I mean, it, it, those of you who read Return with Honor, I mean, it's, it's uh, the best-done book about the Vietnam POW experience. And it's... Um, it's a very important part of the legacy of, of our history, but uh, our little guide took us around for three or four days, and, and it was the interesting thing was what was happening was the five-year Communist Party gathering was happening the weekend we were there. <laughs> we arrived on a Friday, and the, the conference was supposed to be Saturday and Sunday. But they already had a published paper in English that told you the results of the conference that <laughs> hadn't happened yet. <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was that the title page was titled The, uh, the Ninth uh, uh, Five-Year Meeting of the Vietnamese Communist Party. That was the only place in the paper where the word communist was there. The rest of it was about the social uh, things and, and capitalism and uh, and that is what happened after uh, Clinton opened it up. Uh, Vietnam is turning uh, uh, capitalistic. Uh, but I also at one point uh, asked our young guide, I, s- I said, well, does Vietnam still have a goal to, uh, to occupy other countries? He says, oh, yes, Cambodia. So we, uh, we went to Cambodia the next year, 2002. We had a young guy there who, whose father had been a teacher and was killed by the Khmer Rouge because, you know, the Khmer Rouge, uh, starting in 1975, when the United States influence was no longer there, the Khmer Rouge began their devastating killing fields, and uh, there, were, there were killing fields going on in Vietnam too, uh, that, that's a lesson that I don't think is well enough understood by everybody right now if, if we suddenly leave Iraq uh, that could very well happen again there but um, anyway his, his father had been killed because all the teachers were all the intellectuals were his mother took him away up to the north around around the old temples and so now he's a guide and uh, I asked him, I said, are the Vietnamese influential here? He says, oh, yes. He says, every political office in every town in Cambodia, <coughs> there is a, an individual whose body is here, but whose mind and soul is in Vietnam. And that was an interesting statement. That um, I, I personally don't feel that, we have to worry about the domino theory. I don't think I don't think Vietnam is is on the verge of a military expansion, uh, but it's not gone from their history. And a, a lot of things that are happening rest in West Asia are, are happening there. Um, okay, I'm as usual. You know, you get a professor talking, and you can't turn them off. <laughs> we do.
3: <don't.
0: laughs> Uh, so i 'll say about thirty seconds or a minute about about space, and then I want to get to some unless somebody would like to uh, to start the question now about what we 've gone through. Um, this is the book that uh, forty one of us produced that was published last year it 's the first book that analyzes a permanent settlement of humans in space. And I'm, I'm an old systems guy, so when they, when they told me to write it, well, you go edit it. Uh, but by the way, I could not have done it without uh, the Aerospace Technology Working Group, which you can't see it, but they they were a sponsor of the book. And the Aerospace Technology Working Group had all these contacts with space engineers, uh, managers, uh, professors, uh, scientists, uh, religious leaders, uh, uh, educators, uh, and so the, the resource of expertise was there. We figured we had about a thousand years of space expertise in the forty one people that that uh, contributed thirty six chapters in this book uh, and i 'm proud to say that Universe today, which every year uh, picks out uh, best space books, um, identified this as one of its best space books for last year. Uh, and we're doing some other, we're doing a lot of other follow-up things with it now. Um, the foreword was written by Edgar Mitchell, who was Apollo 14 astronaut. Really interesting guy, Navy retired. And this is a statement that he has in it. The legacy that we, the participants, in the greatest space adventure of the 20th century can leave to those that follow is our experience, our best thinking and advice to those that pick up where we left off. And that's that's what uh, one of the efforts that we're doing now. But <coughs> we there were three assumptions, <laughs> as you all know, there's almost no professional, particularly professors, who ever agree on everything. I had 300 people in one of my uh, departments at USC when we had this program around the world. <laughs> they weren't all full-time. About 50 were full-time and the rest were part-time. <clears throat> and if you ever get two professors together and they won't agree on everything. But um, these, and it's the same with, with uh, space people. But there, I've got, we had three assumptions that we started out with in October of 2004 that never changed. They, they, everybody agreed to them, and, and they carried through. And this is the first one: uh, we're star stuff. Oh, let yeah, Dan, let's run uh, the Carl Sagan one. Remember? How many saw Cosmos? Do you remember Cosmos? 1979, 1980, uh, about a dozen TV series. I mean, Carl Sagan's the reason I got into space because uh, he criticized NASA for not being up to speed with uh, uh, artificial intelligence uh, in in computers. So NASA formed a summer research in 1980 that I got involved with and kind of stayed with it ever since. But this, this is the number one, this is only a minute or so, of Sagan, 53 seconds on that number one uh, cosmos. Every person we've ever heard of lived
1: somewhere in there. All those kings and battles, migrations and inventions, wars and love, everything in the history books happened here in the last 10 seconds of the cosmic calendar. on Earth have just awakened to the great oceans of space and time from which we have emerged. We are the legacy of 15 billion years of cosmic evolution. We have a choice. We can enhance life and come to know the universe that made us, or we can squander our 15 billion year heritage in meaningless self-destruction.
0: He's the one who said that we're star stuff. And by the way, there's uh, Lynn Harper, who is Ames Research Center's uh, head of biological sciences, is one of our authors in the book. And also, Ashel Ben Jacob, who is uh, Israeli, he's one of Israel's uh, leading uh, physics uh, scientists, and who invented the science of bacterial intelligence. Bacterial intelligence. Well, what, what's what's happening in the, in the science world now is the genetic implant of star stuff into us all is is becoming more and more confirmed. Uh, we don't know exactly how that happened, but but it's there, and that's it's why we all that's why we want to go. That's why De, uh, Icarus is out here in the lobby. <laughs> but. Uh, <coughs> There's, there's an urge to fly and there's an urge to go to space, which, uh, which humans have always had. Well, this was the second assumption uh, that we came up with, that even if you ignore those urges or you don't count them, the continual improvement of the quality of life for human race on Earth and maybe even our survival may hinge on the success of human exploration and habitation of space. This was another assumption that all 41 of our authors uh, agreed with. And this was the last one. Now, what's fascinating is that uh, the benefits... From space, well, we we all have the benefits of space every day. Everybody uses a cell phone now. We wouldn't do it without space. I mean, that's only one kind of fairly, well, it's not trivial, but it's a communications example. Um, There are huge numbers of benefits. An interesting one came out last week, which has never come out before and is linked to uh, what we're doing here. Role of space solar power for war prevention. This is fascinating because... Howard Bloom, who is a scientist who's been identified as having a brain, uh, a current brain in today's society like Einstein's, has is now, every Thursday night, he has a, a networking conference in the space community. It's called the Space Development Group. They just ended up two weeks ago, some of you saw the news on this, with a national press club, wherein the subject was Space solar power. And uh, for since the 1920s, space solar power has been studied. So there's an awful lot of scientists and thinkers who, who realize the advantages of it. Uh, suddenly now, as of two weeks ago, it's broken nationally into the news, and I'm predicting you're going to see a lot more about it uh, in the future. But the interesting thing is the military got involved, and actually the military were involved in, in the idea that war prevention is just the most dramatic potential. There was a statement that said, well, we'll save a half a trillion dollars a year if we can prevent war. And you know, sack out here on the monument, what does it say? Peace is our profession. <laughs> uh, that's not a subject which is normally linked to the military because we have to end up fighting wars. Uh, but war prevention is a very now. Why would there could be? Would there be? War, might there be war prevention? So energy is the biggest issue globally. Has been forever. One of the main reasons we we have a cultural problem, and so on. Anyway, uh, these are some things that are flowing out of space. So. Uh,